All right. Um, we will be in Daniel chapter 9 today. Um, so let's open up for a word of prayer and then we can get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and Lord, we just give you praise for another opportunity to be in your word and to be here together uh, worshiping you, Lord, and, and uh, just giving you praise. We thank you, Lord, so much for um, just the the times that we have together in our studies, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Daniel, especially as we uh, dig into the truths here. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight into it. We thank you, Lord, for this uh, uh, this new year that we have to look forward to. We just pray, Lord, that this year would be spent uh, bringing glory and honor to you as every day of our lives should be. And we just pray, Lord, that we would look at it as a um, uh, just a, a new new challenge, Lord, and new opportunities to uh, bring glory to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're starting another chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most notable chapters in not just Daniel, but in all of Scripture. And that's primarily because it contains a very key or crucial element of prophecy within it. When thinking about or studying or going over end times prophecies, we would be remiss to not include the contents of Daniel chapter 9 in that process in some way. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that it would be impossible to have a complete picture of God's plan for the future of world history without having an understanding of Daniel chapter 9, a proper understanding of Daniel chapter 9. There are just some elements that are revealed to Daniel here that you don't find anywhere else, ones that hold the key to other parts of Scripture that we would have to study as well when studying end times prophecy. However, what you may not realize, when you talk about Daniel chapter 9, and people point to the events and the content of Daniel chapter 9, is that the portion that we're talking about when we say that is primarily just the last four verses in this 27-verse chapter. The last four verses hold a key portion of scripture that explain a great many things to us. But what does that mean for the other 23 verses? Well, unfortunately, in many cases, it means that not a lot of time or attention is paid to the rest of the chapter, which is really a shame because the first part of Daniel chapter 9, we have material that is extremely important for us to know as well. And hopefully, as we'll see, well, that it's very worthy of our careful examination. What we have in Daniel chapter 9 is really a two-way communication between Daniel and God. A conversation of sorts. Maybe not in the strict sense of a conversation, but in a roundabout way, you have communication back and forth between Daniel and God. Now, with any conversation, there has to be someone who starts a conversation. Some who are familiar with the chapter might say that Daniel is the one that starts the conversation. But in reality, it's God that starts the conversation here. He speaks first, and we'll go over the details of that in just a few minutes. But if you're already looking at the text to see what I mean by that, that that's fine. Um, but we'll explain why I say that in a minute. But we'll see that what we have... Um, we have God speaking to Daniel, and then Daniel responding to God in prayer, and then God responding back to Daniel. And this will once again be through the agency of the angel Gabriel, just like he did back in chapter 8. If you remember, in the last chapter, we were introduced to Gabriel. So, as a self-contained unit, Daniel chapter 9 contains a back and forth between God and Daniel that results in vital information for us concerning future Events, and that's where we'll get when we get to the end of the chapter. In our study today, we're going to be looking at the first two parts, really, of this conversation, with specific emphasis on the prayer of Daniel. The prayer of Daniel in the first 19 verses of this chapter is one of the most complete models of prayer that we find anywhere in the Bible. In fact, to some people, the prayer of Daniel in this chapter is to the Old Testament what the Lord's Prayer is to the New Testament. It is different in the sense that the Lord's Prayer is presented as a pattern of prayer. It's not a prayer to be prayed over and over again, as some people believe about the Lord's Prayer. 
but it shows us the way in which we are to pray. Daniel's prayer here is not presented as a pattern in that sense, nor is it presented as a prayer to pray over and over again. It's an actual prayer that Daniel prayed to God. But in the course of this prayer of Daniel's, and as God see fit to have this prayer recorded for us, we can look at the elements of Daniel's prayer here and we can see this as a model for prayer. We can see the way that Daniel prayed and we could model our own prayers after it. In other words, the way in which Daniel prays this prayer is one that we can look at as an example for our own prayer lives. And I believe that this prayer is not only unique in this way, but that it was recorded for us as a model for prayer because its very presence in the book of Daniel is unique. This is by far the longest recorded prayer that we have in Daniel. In fact, the only other prayer that's recorded in the book of Daniel um, is the one that he offers up to God in the second chapter. After he received the interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and that, that prayer took up a total of four verses. Throughout the rest of this great book of Daniel, we have no other recorded prayers of Daniel. So the fact that this prayer of his is recorded for us here, I think is very profound significance. People say, well, maybe there aren't other recorded prayers of Daniel because maybe Daniel didn't pray all that much. Maybe he wasn't a prayer guy. Maybe it was unique because this was one of his only prayers. And some might think that, but they'd be very wrong, right? Because what do we know about Daniel? We know that he was a man with a great prayer life, and how do we know that? Because we looked at Daniel chapter 6, right? In Daniel chapter 6, the king had made it illegal to pray to anyone other than himself, the king, and yet Daniel kept opening up his window three times a day and praying, even in the face of death, even though he knew that continuing to do so might cost him his life and ultimately should have cost him his life. Daniel was a man with a tremendous prayer life, a prayer life that would put many of us to shame. And let's face it, many believers today find it hard enough to take the time to pray once a day, much less three times a day. And for us, there aren't life or death consequences associated with it like there was for Daniel. A lot of believers today will find any excuse or take, use any excuse to, well, I just didn't get my prayer in today. But the fact that it was a life or death consequence for Daniel didn't concern him. It didn't even give him pause. So Daniel was a wonderful man of prayer. And in this chapter, we get to see a glimpse into that prayer life of his and see this example of prayer that he presents for us here. Now, at this time in his life, Daniel is around 80 years old, maybe even older than 80 years old. He has lived his life in an uncompromising way. He has lived a holy life. He has lived a life set apart to God. He is faithful. He is obedient. He is bold in his devotion to the Lord. Daniel has proven himself over and over again over the course of almost 70 years at this point to be God's faithful servant. And the more that we see of him in this book, the more apparent that becomes. How many people can honestly say that over the course of 70 years of their life, they remained as steadfast and faithful to God as the day that they became saved? It's my hope that many of us can. Most of us, if any of us, have probably not even had 70 years of life yet. But I hope that as we get to that point in our lives, I pray that that's something that would be true in my own life, that I can say that I remained faithful to God over that course of time, and I pray that all of us can be able to say that. So as we start chapter 9, Daniel is about an 80-year-old man by this point, and in the first two verses of the chapter, we get the background once again, we see where this fits in with the history that we've been seeing in Daniel. So let's read verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of of I love these names. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, he was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In this verse, we get the time frame for which this takes place. Now, remember we mentioned several lessons ago, you may or may not remember this, but I'll refresh your memory if you don't, that the last part of the book doesn't flow necessarily chronologically with the first half of the book. 
If we were to look at Daniel from just a chronological standpoint in the chapters in Daniel, we would have the first four chapters, one through four, and then we would insert the events of chapters seven and eight, and then we'd have chapter five, and then, verses, and then chapters six and nine are very close together, and then we would have chapters 10 through 12. But really, I think that God organized this book so that you can see the first half of the book introducing us to a lot of the time frames and the characters and the kingdoms and the events in Daniel's life, the overall events, the summary. And then the prophecies are recorded as taking place within times that were previously defined. So that by the time you look at the prophecy sections that are at the end of the book, or at the, yeah, at the end of the book, you can see where they would fit into, oh, this was during this time frame that we already read about. You remember that both chapters 7 and 8 took place within the rule of Belshazzar, who was introduced to us in chapter 5, but that it was at the very end of Belshazzar's reign. Now this chapter, we see takes place during the reign of Darius. And Darius was introduced to us, sort of, at the end of chapter 5, but really we got to see him more in chapter 6. It's interesting to see the way in which God decided to have this book laid out for us so that we'd, again, already be familiar with the history before presenting us with these other details. So what we have here is the background of this taking place during the first year of Darius's reign. Now I mentioned before that chapters 6 and 9 are closely associated, and that's, we, that's because chapter 6 takes, takes place shortly after the Medo-Persian Empire comes to power. We know that Babylon has already fallen to Medo-Persia, and that happened really at the end of chapter 5, right at the very end. In the beginning of chapter 6, Medo-Persia is in power. There are already the ones that are, that are ruling. And really, the transition takes place at the end of chapter 5, where we read in verses 30 and 31 of Daniel 5, that same night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Short and sweet, Belshazzar's out, Darius is in. But we don't know how soon after that transition of power that these events take place, mostly because we're not told exactly how long into the reign of Darius those things happen when, the, when we get into chapter 6, at least. And if you remember from our study of chapter 6, we're not even completely sure who this Darius is. He is either, this is just a little recap from our study then, he is either a sub-ruler put in charge of the Babylonian kingdom during this time, possibly a man by the name of Gubaru, or it could be that the name Darius is really just a title for ruler, and this could really be a reference to Cyrus himself. Now in verse 1 of chapter 9, I would say that it seems uh, here to back up the theory that this was a sub-ruler under Cyrus and that it was not Cyrus himself, um, because Cyrus was historically recognized uh, the, as the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, for two reasons I would say it's not Cyrus. One, it says here that he is of Median descent, this Darius is of Median descent, whereas we know that Cyrus was actually of Persian descent. He came from the other side of the empire. And number two, it says here that he was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And if this person here, this Darius that we're studying here in chapter 9, was made king, it begs the question, who made him king? And the most obvious answer would be Cyrus made him king. So Cyrus made him a sub-ruler or a king um, in this respect. Now you might think that his lineage might give us some insight into who he was, because it says here that he was the son of Ahasuerus. I said it a little better that time. So he was Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, so now we're getting somewhere, right? We can just look in history and see which Darius was the son of Ahasuerus. Well, that really doesn't help us much either because that is a very common name among royal families in the Medo-Persian Empire. It's kind of like saying Henry, the son of William, in the kings of England and in the whole British monarchy, and um, it doesn't really necessarily narrow it down all that much. Now, when I used Henry and William, I did not look into the history of England. So if somebody points out that there was only one Henry that was the son of William, then 
I'm sorry, but basically those are just common names. That's the point I'm trying to make. So we just can't be absolutely sure. But whatever the case, whatever, whomever this person really was, we know that this took place right around the same time as the events of chapter 6, and that um, this is under the same ruler of the kingdom that we were presented with there. Okay, so that's the time frame. Now, at this time, what happens? Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. In the first year of this king, Darius' reign, what's Daniel doing? It says he observed in the books. What does that mean? He's reading, right? He's reading the books. He's, he's reading information in the books. Basically, here he's reading the word of God. And even more specifically, he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, if you remember, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel's. He wrote during the earlier portions of the Babylonian captivity. Now, Jeremiah would have been gone by the time Daniel was, um, was at this point reading these books. But Jeremiah was one of the ones that remained behind in Jerusalem, in the promised land, writing to those who were left there. He was around during the siege and the destruction of the city, and he ended up dying in Egypt. It's an interesting difference in perspective between Daniel and Jeremiah because of their different situations and the ways in which God used these two different men, these two different prophets. Jeremiah actually had to write his book twice. He had his prophecies, and they were written down. He actually had a scribe that would write them down. Um, But at one point, the scrolls that he had were burned, and they were rewritten. And what's interesting about that here is that Daniel apparently now has a copy of what Jeremiah wrote. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Daniel was reading the copy of what Jeremiah wrote. Right? Because Daniel was in that kind of position. Right? The original words from Jeremiah written down from Jeremiah's scribe Barak. Daniel, if you recall, had, was the wise man of Babylon, right? He had been the head of the wise men. He soon became the favorite commissioner of Darius in the Medo Persian Empire. So there's really no doubt that he had access to the very best and most important works in the entire kingdom, and therefore it would be no surprise if this manuscript of Jeremiah's had found its way to Daniel. Maybe he was even instrumental in finding it and preserving it. But whatever the case or the circumstance, Daniel had the inspired writings of Jeremiah, and he was reading from them. Now here's my question to you, which I kind of brought up earlier, mentioned earlier. If this is a conversation between Daniel and God, who starts this conversation? God does. God speaks first here. Why do I say that? Daniel was reading from God's word, right? As Daniel reads from Jeremiah, he was reading from God's word. He was reading what God was communicating to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, just like he's doing just like he's doing when he wrote when he um, just like God is communicating to us, basically, anytime we sit and open up the book of Jeremiah ourselves, the book of Daniel, anything in God's word. That is God communicating to us through his word, isn't it? And so here, God is communicating to Daniel through the words of the prophet Jeremiah as he sat down to read his word. Now, there's something specific in Jeremiah's writings that he notices here. As he's reading through God's word, there's something specific he notices here that he seeks to understand. This is something that's going to lay very heavy on Daniel's heart. He says, I observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, what is this talking about? What is Daniel reading here? Well, fortunately, we can sit here and guess as, oh, what's this thing that he's reading? Well, we don't have to guess at what Daniel was reading here. Why not? Because we can go to Jeremiah 
and see for ourselves. So turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 25, and we'll see what Daniel's talking about here. Now, I did read some of this to you in our last study, but it's important for us to see this firsthand again, to see how the word of God fits together so well. If you look at Jeremiah, I always love it in Scripture when Scripture refers to other Scripture, right? Here's Daniel reading from Jeremiah, and we can see where Daniel talks about him reading Jeremiah, and we can go to Jeremiah, and we can read what Daniel was reading. So look at Jeremiah 21, or 25, verse 1, where it says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying. And this here is right at the beginning, right? Nebuchadnezzar was just a pup on the throne of Babylon at this time, right? This was his first year, right? He was a newbie when it came to ruling in Babylon. And here is Jeremiah given word from the Lord to speak to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now in verses 3 to 6, We have the warnings that they were given over and over again. Verse 3, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and I will do you no harm. So here, I've warned you. The prophets have warned you. Again and again and again, they were given warnings. Turn from your evil ways Turn from your evil deeds. Do not go after other gods. Do not provoke the Lord to anger. God will do them no harm. But verse 7 comes in. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against the land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And here we have it. This is the word given by the Lord through Jeremiah to the people of Judah. The dominion of Babylon over the nation will be For how long, does he say? 70 years, right? And we've talked about this before. Look at verse 12. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So at the end of that time, what happens? Babylon is punished. The king, the nation... They are punished. They have served their purpose and they will be dealt with by God for or after 70 years. This is part of what Daniel's reading, right? He sees this 70-year time frame here. He knows the time frame. It hasn't been hidden from anyone. Jeremiah wrote it down. Jeremiah not just wrote it down, right, because not everybody had a copy of this, but Jeremiah went out preaching this, right? These were all recorded things that Jeremiah was telling everybody. He wasn't keeping it a secret. Turn over to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Chapter 29, we'll start in verse 1, where it says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now as we come to chapter 29, who's in view here? Who is this portion of the book for? 
Those who have been exiled. Those who were taken into captivity into Babylon. Well, who's that? Well, among many others, Daniel was one of those, right? Daniel was taken into captivity. It says, it says the priests, the prophets, all the people that Nebuchadnezzar, or whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile, Daniel was one of these that this was written to. In the following verses, we see the instructions to them. In verses 5 through 7, he tells them how to live in their exile. Verses 8 through 9, he tells them to beware of false prophets in their midst. But what's of particular relevance to us is found starting in verse 10. So skip down to verse 10. And here we read, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. This is what was in their future at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Their exile, they would be brought back, restored to the land, restored to the city of Jerusalem. But what are they to do? There is a responsibility that they have here, and this is key for our passage in Daniel. Look again at verses 12 and 13, where where it says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is what you will do at the end of those 70 years. You will pray to me and you will call upon me, God says to them. That's what the Lord was telling them. And more immediate here, that's what Daniel was reading back in Daniel chapter 9. How does this affect Daniel? When Daniel reads these instructions to him from God. Think about his situation. He's been in captivity since he was a 15-year-old kid. He's now between 80 and 85 years old. Guess what? 70 years. We're right at that 70-year time frame. And what does that mean? It means time's up. It means they are right about at that prophesied time. Daniel knows this. He sees this. He understands this. He knows that Judah is on the verge of the restoration that Jeremiah was writing about, that God was talking to him about. How exciting would that be for Daniel? This is the time, the time prophesied after 70 years, 70 long years in captivity. This was the time. So here's Daniel with the word of God telling him about the end of the 70 years. And so what does Daniel understand that Israel needs to get busy doing? They need to start getting down on their knees. Call upon me and come and pray to me, God said. Search for me with all your heart. And so that's exactly what Daniel does. That's what chapter 9 is about. What we have here in the first part of the chapter is Daniel Praying on behalf of Israel. A prayer of intercession as he petitions God on their behalf to restore to them what was promised 70 years before. And that's what he does starting in verse 3. And so as we start looking at Daniel's prayer, if you turn back to Daniel 9, as we start looking at Daniel's prayer for Israel, we're going to see several things about the way in which he prays. And in this verse, we're going to see Daniel have a proper attitude in prayer. And I'm just warning you now, we're not getting very far into this prayer. A couple more verses, maybe. So anyway, chapter three, or verse three in Daniel chapter nine. He says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So to begin, take note of what's happening here. Daniel is coming to God in prayer in response to what he read in God's word. This, first of all, is an important thing to consider. Daniel reads the word of God. He sees what it is that he's supposed to do, and how does he respond to that? He does it 
right? He sees what God's word says and he does it. He follows it. He responds by giving attention to God and seeking him through prayer. I point that out because that's a very important aspect for us in our prayer lives as well. Prayer ought to come out of a response to God's word, a response to God himself. Too often believers have an attitude in prayer like we're doing God some kind of favor by approaching him, by giving him our time, by allowing him to do something for us. But that is not what prayer is all about. Prayer is about humbling ourselves before God in order to bring our will in line with his will. It's about confession, it's about repentance, it's about bringing glory to him in an obedient and a humble spirit. How do we know what God's will is? We say it's to bring our will into line with his will. How do we know what God's will is? How do we know the things that we need to confess? How do we know what kinds of things that we should be petitioning God for? Because we have his word. We read it in his word and we respond to his word. I read in his word things like what kind of man I'm to be, what kind of husband, what kind of father, what kind of member of a local church I'm to be. All those things are in the word of God. And I ought to be praying to God that I am that kind of man. I read about the love that I am to have for my fellow believers, the compassion, the compassion, the kindness, the mercy for my other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should put me down on my knees, lifting each and every one of you up in prayer for your needs, for your trials, for your edification, for your encouragement. Daniel, he read about the completion of the 70 years for Israel. He read about their condition, why this all happened. I'm sure he knew that before, but he was reading in God's word about these things, knowing about all that happened before. He read about what he was supposed to do and what does that inspire him to do? He seeks out God in prayer for him to accomplish what he said he would do. It drove him to pray. Now, some of us might think, when you read through this and you read about the promise of God, why pray for what God has already said that he would do? Especially if he was going to do it anyway, right? I mean, God promised that this would happen. So why pray for it to happen? But we need to realize that we don't just pray so that God does something in order to prompt him to act on something. Prayer is not something that you know, we push a special button to make God do something for us. No, we pray to acknowledge our own understanding of his will. Pray to put ourselves in line with what he has already determined. We've been studying these events that will happen in our future, events that are guaranteed to take place. All these things that we've been studying in Daniel will happen. Does that mean that there's no need for us to pray for them to occur? No, we can get down and pray that God will bring forth his kingdom. We can pray for the coming rapture to take place. We can pray for the time when we will spend eternity with him in glory. Even though we realize that all these things will someday take place, that makes it even more of a reason for us to pray. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6 real quick. I mentioned it earlier, and we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Many of us can probably say the Lord's Prayer by heart. But what do we read there? What does Jesus model for us in that prayer? In Matthew 6, starting in verse 10, just part of it here, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Now, does Jesus think that the kingdom won't come if this isn't said in prayer? Does he think that, oh, if nobody says this, then the kingdom's not going to come? Not at all. He knows better than anyone that it'll come. Is there any reason to think that the will of God won't be accomplished? That God's will might fail if they don't pray for it to happen? Not at all. But in praying in this way, we are acknowledging the will of God. We are acknowledging the coming of his kingdom. We are agreeing, agreeing, if you will, that he will accomplish all that he desires. 
Another thing he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, right? We know that part. We are to ask God to provide for us our daily provisions, right? We, but then if you notice down in verse 25, skip ahead a little bit in the chapter where Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. It's not life more than food and the body than clothing. Then in verse 31, do not be anxious then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Jesus makes it clear that God takes care of his children. He provides for us in many different ways. So on the one hand, we're to ask God to provide, right? Give us this daily, our, day, our daily bread. But then Jesus says that God's going to provide anyway. So then, again, some people ask, why pray for it? Because in asking, we're acknowledging God's provision in our lives, acknowledging that all that we have is from him. Things may not always work out the way that seems best for us when we pray, or in a way that we think that we would want them to. A lot of times we pray with an attitude of, God, this is how you should do this for me. But God works all things out in the way that brings glory to him and that fits according to his will. Sometimes we pray and we ask for things, provisions for healing, for pain to reside, and, and those things don't come immediately. Or they don't come in the way that we expect, or sometimes they don't come at all. But that doesn't mean that we've failed or that God has failed. It just means that we don't always know what God has planned for us. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you're probably all familiar, he talks about the thorn in the flesh. Most people would agree that this is a reference to some sort of physical ailment or problem that Paul had in his life, right? He tells the Corinthians in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 12, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Here Paul explain, explains what he prayed. Three times he prayed for this thorn to be removed from him, for this problem that he had to be taken away. But removing his affliction wasn't God's will. God's answer was that his grace is sufficient for Paul to withstand the affliction that he had. Sometimes that's God's answer. That sometimes it becomes apparent that prayer isn't for the removal of something in our lives, but it's for the grace to withstand what we have in our lives. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that that's sometimes God's answer? Because we read it in God's word, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We have an example of that. That affects the response that we have to God's word in our prayers. Our prayers are not for God. He doesn't need our prayers. He covets them, he desires them, but our prayers do not convince God, they don't remind God, they don't inform him of something that he doesn't already know. Oh Lord, I have this problem in my life. He knows about the problem that you have in your life. Our prayers are for us to get our will and attitude in line with where God wants them to be, with what they need to be. And for our attitude to be where it should be, we need to be in God's word. Prayer and God's word are linked together. We should never be in God's word without having an attitude of humility towards it and to respond to him accordingly. And conversely, we cannot have an effective prayer life without having an understanding of his word, his communication to us. Unless we know what he wants of us and for us, we cannot pray effectively. And there are many other passages that we could look at for this. Psalm 119 has verses that talk about how the word of God ought to be our meditation and our counselor. And it ought to fill our minds continually, even when and especially when we come before the Lord. And here in Daniel chapter 9, Dan, with Daniel's prayer, that's what we're seeing. 
What Daniel reads from God's word is what fills his mind and he reacts to it with the proper attitude. Look at verse three again. How does he pray? First off, he says, I gave my attention to the Lord. This literally reads, I set my face towards the Lord. In other words, Daniel has a singular focus when he's praying here. There wasn't anything else to distract him. Daniel wasn't sitting there praying in front of the TV or between texts or praying while he was driving. He wasn't praying between meetings or when he was walking from building to building or whatever it was that he might have to distract him or whenever he could squeeze time in. Daniel had absolute focus on his time with God which we should strive for in our prayer life as well. Now that's not to say that there aren't times when we may need to get a quick word in if there's, you know, in a a specific time of need. If I find myself losing control of my car on the ice and I'm trying to get it back under control, I might have a few words of prayer to the Lord while I'm trying to get my car back under control. But in the normal course of the day, with regard to his prayer life, he found time, he made time, to make sure that he was focused on his time with God. And we saw that back in our study of chapter 6. Three times a day, Daniel was on his knees praying to God, focused on that task. And it's that same type of attitude that we need to have in our prayers. Not filled with distractions, not getting in quick requests during commercials or at stoplights, Uh, but a regular time of focus between us and God, and they ought to have a resolute purpose in them. I'm coming before my God. I'm coming into the presence of my Lord and Savior. This is how I commune with him. This This is how I talk to him. That's not something to be done with a flippant attitude, not something to be taken lightly or with a lack of attention. If we were to receive an audience with an important figure, I'll say the President of the United States, and you're walking into the Oval Office to speak with him, regardless of what you think of his politics, he's going to have your full attention, isn't he? You're not going to walk in there and ignore him or be unprepared to talk to him. If you were walking into the Oval Office to talk to the President, you would be prepared and focused on the President. But when it comes to God, do we give him that same attention every time that we pray? And oftentimes I would guess that we don't. We ought to come before God with our face set towards him like Daniel did. Now that's not all that he says here. He takes it a step further as well. He says he prays with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Again, this is the reaction he has to what he reads, keeping in mind that this was his response to God's word concerning the condition of Israel, right? So there are some specific things here, things he was doing in response to that. But what's key here is that, and what we can take away from what he's doing here, is that he's coming with humility. Daniel's not coming before God with an attitude of, well, you know, I read in Jeremiah that 70 years, so God, time's up. How are we going to get back to Israel? I'd like to be back there by Tuesday. That's not Daniel's attitude. Daniel comes with complete humility here. First, we see his physical response, right? He says he prays with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. These were all signs of a humble spirit. Fasting meant he was so focused that he deprived himself. He didn't even eat. Sackcloth was a a rough material that would be worn, which was a deprivation of material comfort. Ashes were a sign of mourning. Grief over a great loss is why they were used in prayer. Daniel recognizes that Israel has sinned. He realizes that there is something terribly wrong between Israel and God. And that's what got them into that position that they were in in the first place. And so as he comes before God, he he doesn't come with a defiant attitude. He comes with a humble heart prostrating himself before God. Now, what does the focus of his prayer contain? He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So this is a prayer of confession. This is Daniel laying it all out before God. God, this is what we are guilty of. This is what we've done before you. This is what we've done against you. 
And we might say, wait a minute, why is Daniel confessing? Daniel was one of the godliest men in the Bible. He didn't do anything against God. What does he have to confess? And when Judah was taken captive, Daniel was 15 years old. So even you go back 70 years, and then was Daniel one of the guilty ones? He was just a kid. Why is he down on his knees in sackcloth and ashes confessing sin? And we'd be right to say many of those things about him. Daniel was a godly man. Did you know that Daniel was one of the only prophets that didn't carry some sort of baggage with him where we don't read about any sin that he was involved in? Now, I'm not saying Daniel was perfect, but we don't have anything recorded bad about Daniel. You read through his book, and there's no sinful flaw recorded in Daniel, and yet here he is, the one confessing before God. The thing is, Daniel was confessing on behalf of his people, his own people. He never separated himself out. He never saw himself as above anyone else, never too good to be set apart from them. If you think about it, he was in a position he could easily have done that. He was head of the kingdom. Why do I need to care about those little people? But that's not Daniel's attitude. He threw his lot in with the rest of his countrymen. He got down on his knees and confessed the sin of Israel before God because as a part of, his na- of that nation... He took them on himself too. He realized those were his sins too. Now what can we take from this? Obviously this was specific, right? We're not at the end of a 70-year judgment. So how does this affect us? Well, I would say that when we come before the Lord, we need to have that same attitude of humility, that same broken spirit that Daniel had. I don't think that we need to make a run on sackcloth shirts from Target, but we do need to get on our knees before God and humble ourselves. People often wonder, well, what's the best way to pray? What's the best position to pray in? Do we kneel? Do we stand up? Do we lay down? Do we have our heads up? Do we have our heads bowed? Do we have our hands up? Do we have our hands folded? I really don't think a lot of that matters as long as we have the humble attitude. If I feel like I need to curl up in a ball on the floor in order to properly humble myself, then that's what I ought to do. If I have a proper humble spirit sitting in my chair or standing in place, that's fine too. As long as my attitude is right before God. I remember a a pastor saying one time that he would pray walking around in his office because if he sat down, he could fall asleep. And so he figured if I walk around in my office, if I fall asleep, I'm only going to be asleep until I hit the floor, and then I'll be, I'll be up then. The point is, as long as our attitudes are right before God, that's what we need to be praying. That's how we need to be praying. And then as part of that attitude, one of the first things that I need to do is confess before God. Confession of my sins. And we'll have more to say about this next time as we look at the confession of sins that Daniel goes through here. But confession of sin is vital to a healthy prayer life. 1 John 1 9, we won't turn there. Um, but 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you could read that verse and you could say, But I thought as a believer my sins were forgiven anyway. So again, Why do I need to confess? Well, yes, they are forgiven. But this goes back again to the reason for prayer. It's not to get something. It's to bring our will in line with God's will. God knows our sins. When we confess our sins, we're not telling him anything that he doesn't know. But it's important for us to agree with him about our sins and to repent of them and to put those sins behind us. And in the remainder of this recorded prayer, we'll take a look at those confession in more detail. And so this is Daniel's response to God's word, or at least the beginning of his response to God's word. God here has spoken first. God started the conversation by what he revealed through Jeremiah about what was going to happen, revealed what would happen at the end of those 70 years. And now Daniel, with a proper attitude and a resolute and submissive heart, is going to respond to God's word. Respond to God in obedience through prayer. And in our next lesson, we'll take a look at Daniel's response. 
So I guess at the end of this lesson, the obvious question that we can take from this is, how's our prayer life? What is our attitude in prayer? What is our focus or how is our focus in prayer? I think the more that we grow and mature in our faith, the less satisfied we seem to be with our prayer life. We can always pray more. We can always pray more often. We can always pray longer. We can always pray for more people. And if that's our attitude, then, then great. I think our prayer lives are on track with that. We recognize we always have room for improvement. Of course, that also means that we're striving to improve. It's when we have prayer lives that don't take priority or that aren't focused or are always lacking that we need to stop and evaluate what we're really doing. Do I realize when I pray that I have the privilege to come into the presence of God? That I am putting myself before him and acknowledging what he has revealed to me in his word? Is that my attitude? Is the one who has allowed that privilege, even though in and of myself, I am not worthy of that privilege, but I am allowed to come into the presence of God? Or do I have a lack of focus, a lack of reverence? Do I act as though my prayers are only for what I can get from God? If we were standing in the room with somebody and we were on our phones while they were standing there waiting for us to talk, right? I mean, that's, we see that these days, right? But that's kind of the attitude if we're not focused before God. That shouldn't be the case with us. That's not how Daniel's prayer was. That's not how our prayers should be either. Our prayers need to be grounded in his word, acknowledging his will, and conducted with absolute focus and humility of mind, all for the glory of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we just give you praise for another opportunity to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for Daniel's life. We thank you, Lord, for the example that we have from him. Lord, we thank you for uh, this prayer that we have from Daniel, and we can see his attitude and his, uh, his responses to your word in this, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that we would take a look at our own lives, our own prayers, the way that we communicate with you, Lord. We just pray that you would help us to uh, just make that right before you. Pray, Lord, that we would have a humble attitude and a humble spirit. Pray, Lord, that we would um, just acknowledge when we do sin, when we sin, when we do the wrong things, Lord, pray that we would confess that before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just be um, just acknowledging who you are each and every day. I thank you, Lord, again for this time. I thank you for the hour that we've had. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the next hour as well as we sing praises to you, Lord, as we worship you, as we hear your word. Just pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.